0: Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and remember, I'm only as hip as my guest. i got to tell you something, people. Uh, the best thing on TV, I watch a lot of TV, Sunday nights is the best TV. And i got to tell you because it's, uh, it's got the vice principals on HBO, ballers. I enjoy Ray Donovan. Uh, roadies, you know, I'm not really sure about roadies. Some episodes hit, some miss for me. But they had an episode a few weeks ago where uh, Ron White, who plays the, the gruzzled veteran roadie, tells a story about... Leonard Skinner and how he met Leonard Skinner and it was that episode was actually written by Cameron Crowe who produces it and it was just an amazing episode so if you have showtime or on demand find an episode it's about leonard skinner and it's great but the show that's really i'm digging is the show if you haven't watched it it ends this week but you can go back on demand that's the beautiful thing about on demand is a show called the night of and you got to check it out it's it's, a, it's very gritty john totoro stars in it it was originally a james gandolfini uh he took it to hbo and then he passed away and then they brought it back to life this thing so go check that out people because you know there is some good tv out there and you got to see it and I'll tell you, we have we have a guy who's been on TV. He's directed TV. I mean, he's he's a man who wears many many hats. And I've been watching him, and I loved watching his comedy when I was younger. And he still watches comedy, and it's Will Schreiner. How you doing, Will? I'm good, Steve. How's it going? Good, good. I, I'm glad. It's funny because I remember I used to watch you when I. I mean, I'm I'm a few, I'm ten. I think I'm like eight or nine years younger than you. I used to watch you. I used to watch the Letterman show in, in the morning. I remember I had, I think I had mono or I was out from school, but that's, that's one of your first big breaks.
1: Yeah. I mean, David and I were friends at the comedy store back in like the late seventies. And when he got a show going, uh, he, uh, said, I, if I ever get something going, I want to, I want to hire you. Oh shit. I think, I, I think that was Jay Leno calling me. Damn it. Uh, uh, do you want to uh, take it? Do you want to take it? Oh, now my phones are all going off. Um, yeah, Jay, I was talking to Jay the other day. He's calling, I think he's calling me back. I can always tell it's him because this is no caller ID. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, David Letterman, Jay Leno, Richard Lewis, you know, all the guys that were hanging around the store were all, uh, you know, we were all uh, just struggling comedians. And Dave started doing The Tonight Show as a host. And I did my first three Tonight Shows with Dave. And then when he got the show in New York, he took me and Rich Hall and Meryl Marco, and we all went to New York. And, you know, we were like kids in the candy. We were kids with a network show live 90 minutes every day
0: now how did you get into comedy i know you were a child actor i think your first commercial was like when you were one or something like that and then your father was a humorist who i believe had some shows were you just born into it did you know you wanted to do it or because it around the house that you just gravitated towards it
1: uh yeah that was pretty much it i mean my dad was a uh humorist and a tv personality started in radio he started as a musician uh and he um had a show called Two for the Money, then he had his own variety show. And, we, and my dad, since we were twins, I have a twin brother, you know, he started using us in commercials and stuff. So, you know, we just kind of, uh, you know, grew up around show business. My mother was an acrobatic dancer, you know. So, uh, you know, it just seemed like the thing to do. I mean, I, you know, everybody, if your dad was a fireman, you'd probably become a fireman or a cop or whatever. So, uh, yeah, we just, I, I grew up around comedy and I looked at my dad, worked like an hour, you know, one couple nights a week. And I thought, well, I like these hours. <laughs>
0: So so now you sit there, you're you're, you're in New York, Is that, that's where you grew up, right?
1: Uh, no, I was just born in New okay. York, I was born in Manhattan, but I grew up in Florida, and uh, a little bit in L.A., and uh, mostly in Florida.
0: So now, when did you decide to start doing comedy, and when did you start getting on stage? I know, I, don't, I believe you went to film school. Uh, well,
1: I think you start doing comedy in, in the schoolroom, I went to Catholic school, so if I could see my friends get smacked by a nun over something I said, I found great joy in that, and... Uh, I took it to the stage in, like, 77. I was making funny movies. I went to UCLA film school, and I was making little short films that I would show at the new art and the and the different art house theaters, and they had tracks live. I recorded the track on it, and then I thought, well, I could do these. They were like funny news reels, so I started doing them at the comedy store. And I, you know, I would put a sixteen millimeter projector in the back, and I would show these little. They were really like 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 old time newsreels, but with a hip modern commentary. And you know, I remember, you know, a lot of the jokes, you know, were sort of you know diametrically opposed to what you were seeing on camera. So it it, it seemed to be unique and different enough that I became a regular at both the store and the improv pretty quickly. So then it was just a time, you know, building stage time and you know, build, developing an act outside of the movies and talking about my life and you know, and, and you know, as you, as you, you know, as you go through all the stuff we go through, getting married, having kids, getting remarried and all that stuff, it just becomes fodder for material.
0: Now, what was the scene like? You said all those guys were out there then. I mean, was it was it like a magical scene because there's all these young comics and there probably wasn't as many. I mean, now in LA there's I mean, you can drop a hat on a sidewalk and you'll see 27 comics what
1: was that Uh, my son's a comic he's a third generation comedian and you know he goes to the i go to the open mics with him on occasion and stuff you know he's been he's been getting up at the improv and a little bit at the comedy store and you know he goes to a lot of these you know open mics and bringers and he he goes to flappers and uh richie puts him on a flappers and you know he's developing an act he's got 20 minutes now and and uh you know i would not want to be trying to make it uh today when i was when i was doing it there was a real supportive kind of nature to comedy. And we wrote a HBO show about this. It was a play about sort of about the club owner. It was kind of loosely based on Bud Friedman and a little bit of Mitzi. But it was about how, you know, uh, comics were supportive. Bud would, you know, shut down the... You know, they crank up the TV when you were on The Tonight Show, and everybody would come into the bar and watch, you know, and then they'd cheer if you got over to sit with Johnny, and Bud Bud would buy a round of drinks. And, you know, we all went out at at night. We went to, uh, what is it, Cantor's on Fairfax, and we would all, like, help each other with their bits, you know. It was a very collaborative and and supportive, but there were only about two or 300 comedians in those days. So you knew everybody, and you knew everybody's routines, and, you know, guys like Tom Dreesen, who were sort of the you know, a little more successful, they were ahead of me, Jimmy Walker, Shanling, some of these guys that were already, you know, had good acts. You know, those guys were, you know, very giving. And, uh, you know, today it's a little darker environment. Everybody's, you know, you know pissed off about everybody else's success. And, you know, I mean, there's room for everybody. I mean, there's so much TV now. There's so much, you know, there's so many outlets for, uh you know, for expression and 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 creativity. That I mean, but, you know, the internet has opened it up. I mean, you know, you can have you what you're doing. You got your own show. You know, you you know you don't have to wait around for somebody to give you a show now. You, you people just give you. You know, you, you just create your own future. And uh, YouTube and 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 you know, a lot of the and a lot of these uh, channels are giving people you know opportunities to go to the next level. You know, it's also bringing a lot of crap on. You know, there's a lot of wasted time on YouTube and, not, you know, I mean, I, I still think you have to be entertaining, you have to have interesting characters, you have to have a story to tell, otherwise you're just, you know, you're, you're not really servicing, you know, an audience.
0: Well, I think, yeah, I think it's changed too with the comedy, because I did comedy in the Philadelphia area from like mm-hmm. 88 to 95, and there was two clubs, the comedy works and Comedy Factory outlet, and, you know, you did, when you were new, you could run back and forth, but then you had to like, sort of pick your clubs, you know, to play on, but it was, it was the same thing. Yeah, it all I, go I,
1: got, like, I used to work the comedy works. Cause that was right on that main drag across from the cheese steak place, right? Yeah,
0: and it was it was it was the Indian restaurant. It was uh, yeah
1: yeah yeah. Um, I remember going in there a few yeah. times. I had a show on in in. in uh, a syndicated talk show that was a Westinghouse deal. So I used to come to KYW in Philly and fill in for Richard Bay, who was the host. And we were, you know, basically <laughs> developing my uh, talk show persona, a, a lot of it in Philly. So we were there a lot.
0: Yeah, it was that was a club. But we would go to, like, Nick's Roast Beef, where we would just hang out. And the same thing, we would... You'd get, like, eight of you, and you'd go somewhere, and you just... Talk comedy, and you're right. It was very supportive, and that's changed somewhat, which sort of sucks because that was a cool thing. Because the stories you'd hear, or if their comics were in town that were, you know, headliners we wanted to see, they usually come out with you too to hang out. Yeah, cause yeah. They well, didn't have nothing do else it.
1: to do. We only work an hour,
0: right? <laughs> so now, so now you're breaking it. You you you're doing the films, and you're doing the comedy, and Letterman. You, you go. You start doing films on the Letterman show when he had his.
1: Yeah, I got on. I was a writer for the you know for the show, and mostly a lot of us wrote our own bits, and we'd have to bring them on. Rich Hall, Bob Sarlot, who was a San Francisco comic, Edie McClure, and Val Bromfield. And so you know we would collectively write for the show, but most of us would write our own. You know, I'd go out. I was like, this was early on in eighty. I was going out in the field with cameras, doing a lot of on the street stuff. You know. The kind of stuff that you see now, what's his name, Billy on the Street, and that stuff. We were doing that in the '80s with um, with a portable uh, two inch machine, um, and then we got then once U-matic three quarter tape came along, we could go out and we'd be a lot more mobile. But uh, and Dave used to go out with Merrill. they'd go out and shoot remotes and everything else. I mean, it was great fun because it was what's called found comedy. You know, you basically, you know, you put Dave as a drive-in window, and you got found comedy. You know, and, and uh, so a lot of the early stuff that we did. Um, and I took that to other shows. I did a show called The Home Show with Gary Collins for about six years, and I went around the world doing pieces. They'd drop me somewhere, and I'd hire a crew, and we'd make a story about, you know, we'd know what we were doing. We, you know, we went there with a purpose, but we'd get a crew, and, and it, when you knew you had shot, like, uh, five beta tapes, five 20-minute tapes, you figure you had enough for a five-minute story you could get on a plane and come home.
0: Right. <laughs> so, now, as you're doing the stand-up, when, uh, when you said you were on The Tonight Show, and Dave, uh hosted was that your first three appearances were with dave as the guest host
1: yeah my first two my very first two i came out on the tonight show and just showed a film in the desk spot in what's called the second spot the panel spot so i showed a behind the scenes tonight show film that i'd wrote and and uh, that, I, that i said roten is that not proper english that i wrote and directed and then i came back with a thing about the democratic convention and then the third time i did a stand-up monologue and went over and sat with dave and you know it took a little of the uh the tension and the heightened, you know, sort of pressure. So when I finally got to do it with Johnny the first time, you know, I, I'd kind of been there and I and I knew the environment because the Tonight Show comedy spot. It was like 500 people in a raked studio. You know, the laughs just bathed you. You know, they drenched you with laughter, and there was real hot. They had a couple follow spots high in the audience, so you really couldn't see anything but the tally light of the camera. And uh, you weren't supposed to look over at Johnny. And, you know, you're supposed to just look forward and do your spot. And so, you know, it was a very intimidating, I tell people all the time, standing behind that big, heavy curtain, you'd hear the bomb da the bomb the Doc Severinsen. And a, the band would, you know, with a thump would stop. And you'd hear this muttering, you know, my next guest is making a comedian appearance here. And, and you'd like, oh, shit, and your heart would start beating. And then you walk out, and when you get your first laugh, and you see this with every comedian, even in the archival stuff that's out there, you know, everybody gets that first big laugh. And you can just see the comics settling in, going, oh, this is going to be good. This is going to be a good ride. And a lot of us used to go and, and do spots like at 1 o'clock the night before just to kind of bomb so we, were, we would feel comfortable knowing our set with no laughs.
0: <laughs>, <laughs> oh, God, that's so funny. Now, when you, you're first with Johnny, how did you do?
1: Well, I did good. I mean, I did real well with Johnny. I, you know, it was never really scheduled that I was going to get called over. I mean, the the big carrot for a lot of people was, you know, getting called over their first time out. And it happened to, I think, uh, Ellen DeGeneres and Drew Carey and I think Roseanne. And they had, you know, and, and there were a lot of elements. If the show was running long, you knew you weren't going to get called over. If you went long, personally, like you planned six minutes, but with that audience, it would go seven because it was you get laughs and applause and stuff like that. So I would always, you know, suggest to people, plan five minutes, you know, because maybe you'll leave yourself 30 seconds of free time that Johnny will call you over. So I did about two or three before I got called over, and then I, uh, then, then, you know, then it was pretty much understood you come over every time. And then I got to a point where I was I was doing a movie with, for Francis Coppola called Peggy Sue Got Married, and I just came out, like, as an actor, you know, without doing any stand-up, and just sat on the panel, and it was funny. And that was like, to me, that was like, oh, now I've really made it. I'm like, you know, I'm like Dick Cavett. I'm like, you yeah. know... Steve Martin, we just come out and we sit down. Yeah, you know?
0: <laughs> that's true. Now, when you got the initial show with Johnny, did your stand-up career change, or had it already changed because you had already done an it, it was with David.
1: No, no, it was like it was like winning America Idol back in those days in the eights, late seventies, early eighties. When you did the Tonight Show, the next day, you know, you're getting your laundry, and the guy saw you, and you know, you're in a market, and people go, oh, "I saw you at a Tonight Show." And then my fr- I got a gig opening for uh, Paul Anka. At the Aladdin in Las Vegas, I think, after my first Johnny Tonight show. And I was there for like a week with him. And, you know, all of a sudden things start coming in, and then, you know, you start getting booked in other casinos. In those days, you know, the aspiration of a comic was to get, uh, you know, opening act status in, in bigger paying venues. So we all would go to either Vegas or Tahoe or Reno or Atlantic City and, and be an opening act. And then, you know, then once you had some exposure, you start getting billing, and, you know, you kept building up and building up to where. You know i finally built up to a point where i was what's called a co-headliner so like i would joan rivers and i would work caesar's tahoe and we would get you know equal billing on the marquee and that was like oh man i'm making it and you know even though joan was making more money it was still like the prestige of being a co-headliner yeah I mean, and that the t- the, t- the power of television in those days was to take you to those areas and then along came the 80s mid-80s when Roseanne got her TV show and, and, and Drew Carey and, and uh, 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 Brett, Brett Butler and Tim, Tim Allen and all these guys were getting their own sitcom and then that kind of became like the, 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 the hurdle like I want to get on a Tonight Show with a set that shows my attitude and then get a development deal.
0: Now did you get any development deals when, for sitcoms? I know you, you hosted your own show eventually but did you at that time were you, did you get a development deal thrown at you?
1: No, nah, not really. You know, in those days, I, you know, I wasn't really driven to be. Uh, and it's stupid, you know. Once I started directing sitcoms, I realized what a great life it is. I mean, it's probably the best life in show business. You're on a sound stage, you know, with air conditioning and people bringing you food and you know, light rehearsals and you know, and, and it's a great life. I, I was I was attracted to. And it's funny because uh, Barry Sand, who produced the Morning Letterman show, once said to me, "We were live at ten o'clock every morning for you know about." Five months, four months, or something, and he said to me, "You know, if Dave doesn't show up one morning. I'm going to put you in the chair. So be ready." And I'm like, "Oh, yeah, that would be cool. I'd like that." And uh, so I kind of just sort of leaning towards, uh, you know, being a host. And I'd, I'd really always admired Carson so much, and you know, really sort of wanted everybody wanted that life, you know, to have their own talk show. So. Um, it was a weird thing, because I made this little film for Letterman about my dog stealing my car and driving around the neighborhood, and Francis Coppola's casting guy um, saw it, and uh, legendary casting guy, that put, uh, Fran- oh, God, I'm blanking on his name, um, uh, about it. but he saw me on there and uh, wanted a copy of the film, and so I went into a meeting at Warner Bros. and he said, you know, are you an actor? And I said, yeah, 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 sure, yeah, I'm an actor, and I've done a couple of small films and things like that, and uh so i read something for him and he brought me back to meet francis and the next thing i know i'm i am got a co-starring role in peggy sue got married playing joan allen's husband with jim carrey and, and harry basil and a bunch of you know and sophia coppola and kathleen turner and nick cage and all these people and we're like you know we're on a road to being actors now this is like 85 and i came back and i got an amazing stories episode for kevin reynolds and then I got a, uh, I did a dream on for John Landis, and I'm thinking, man, I'm, you know, I'm getting some good credits here, and and Alan Thicke was going to host uh, a talk show for Westinghouse, and then he got growing pains and bailed out, and I knew a couple people over there, and they said, well, you, you know, would you be interested? And I said, yeah, I would be, you know, actually. So I, I went and I got groomed and I got sent around the country to different stations to host their local shows and. They developed me as a as a talk show host, and then we took a show to Nappy, and we sold it in 110 markets. You know, the first really easily the first year, and it was it was off and running. And we you know we got like big ratings, and in, in the beginning we got like a almost a four rating, and, and of course you know those days a four wasn't even good enough. You know they were pissed he didn't have a five. So um, you know I did uh, I did 200 hours of that and. the all the executives at Westinghouse all got fired and were replaced, and so nobody really championed us for a second year, so suddenly I found myself you know, out of work as a ho- talk show host. So then I started hosting, uh, uh, I hosted a, a show uh, with Animals for CBS and a show about inventions for Goldwyn, and, and I became what's, you know, what's pretty much like a go-to host, you know, kind of like what Mario Lopez or Bully Bush or these guys are, and I did that for a long time, and that really kind of kills your acting career.
0: Yeah, because everyone, you know, pretty much thinks of you as a host. Now, what was it like, though, having your own show? I mean, you know, it's the, the Will Schreiner show. I mean, it's it's your names on it. Was there a lot of pressure on you? I mean, and how was... What was your day like on that? Because, you know, people say, like, with Letterman, he would be there all the time. What was your day like when you hosted your own show and were you involved in the writing process, seeing that you had been a writer and you have been a... You, you are were a comic and you also made the films... How did you incorporate that all into your experience on the Will Schreiner Show?
1: Uh, well, yeah, it was a lot of work. I mean, it was a lot of work. You're there, you know, you'd get there at 9 in the morning and you'd get home like at 9 or 10 at night. I mean, it's, it was a long day. And we, we, we did two shows a day, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. So you do a 1 o'clock show and like a 5 o'clock show. So you, you basically would do a show... And then you'd get maybe a half hour, you know, just to put your feet up. And then you'd start looking at the notes for the next show. And we'd start rehearsing, you know, whatever demo or whatever we were doing in the next show. And it was a tremendous, uh, a tremendous workload. It's like a treadmill. You're just running on this treadmill. And uh, in a way, when it finally ended, it was kind of a relief, you know. And I look at, like, Ellen and I look at Kimmel and those guys. I mean, they do one show, and it's it's their whole day. And, you know, it's it's and it's hard. It's hard enough, and we were doing two a day, and then towards the end, as the money was getting cut, we were doing three a day. So we were doing three one-hour shows. I would come home, and I couldn't even remember who was on. You know, I'd go, uh, I don't remember. I think it was like Dr. Ruth was on, and that's all I can remember. <laughs> so it's, it's, but it's a great, you know, I mean, you know, for the first, when you go to the NAPTI convention, which is where they sell syndicated shows, from that period till you go on the air, you're like a golden child. Uh, Westinghouse gave us credit cards me and the head writer and the producer and uh you know just go out and make friends and we went around the country you know taking press people out to lunch taking station managers sales people general manager you know we were just flying around uh making friends and trying to get them to support the show and uh i mean the show the show it, it, we got nominated for three emmys and stuff like that you know it was it was tough we were up against oprah and phil donahue and and for us, we were on at 9 in the morning in New York up against a local show called Regis and Kathy Lee. And in Chicago, we were on after Letterman. And in L.A., we were on at, like, 10 at night. So it was like, who's our audience? You know, we don't really, you know, who we who we trying to reach here, you know? It was tough. When you syndicate shows, they just try to sell them wherever they can. And it's always been a challenge. Like, uh, what's his name? has got a new show. Harry Connick, you know. And it'll see. It'll be on at all different day parts. And, you know, he's he's probably finding out the hard way you know you got to figure out what's this and they gave us a drawing of a woman who was you know from Indiana with a high school education two and a half kids 40,000 dollars family income that's your audience go after her and we go uh, we really don't want to go after that audience right
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah especially cuz you know your stuff is hip and it's so funny that you know when they do play it on different at different times i mean you're right if you're going after letterman you know what that is that's that's college kids if you're going yeah, at yeah, nine yeah. in the morning well i
1: mean letterman's morning show you know they they replaced it. They put him in this lot of game shows and I mean, we lost affiliates every week we had pins on the map where we lost a station that just said, "No, that's not for us," and they would put on something else i mean it was you know but david they recognized in david's you know talent and his and his voice and his you know his take that there's a talent there, so you know they found. The right day part for him but you know uh, you know a lot of time the, mean, the networks and the you know the executives in charge you know they're just trying to copycat whatever's going on and they, you know, they thought well you know Johnny's getting old let's find a younger hipper you know guy or you know and 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 David was a natural choice and NBC when the show ended NBC was going to let him go at and, uh, and smartly uh, his management talked him into getting a holding deal so David kind of could chill and knew that he was going to come back to another show.
0: Now, when you're doing the hosting on your own show, were you also still keeping your stand-up chops up? I mean, I know you did, you know, monologues, one thing, but were you still going out hitting the clubs, or you just didn't have the time for that?
1: Yeah, yeah, well, I mean, when you know, after you have a TV show, like after my talk show ended, yeah, I did a lot of clubs, because you could then fill the clubs, people knew who you were, they paid, you know, there's a big difference between, you know, people paying because they want to see you, as opposed to just being a comic in a club. So, it was easier, actually, when people are coming in predisposed that they like you and they want to see you. And I did that for, you know, 10, 10, 10 or 12 years, and uh, in and around, working on this other, you know, this I was a correspondent on this ABC show going around the country. But I always kept my hand in stand-up. It was always sort of the ultimate, you know, satisfying job because you're the writer, you're the producer, you're the director, you're the performer, you're the editor. You know, you, you, know, you get to do it all. And, and to, to this day, when guys come through here that are friends of mine, I'll jump on, you know, uh, you know, for a, for, you know, for a bargain price, I'll go open for him in a theater with Bobby Collins or Kevin, uh, Kevin Neal, I do that a lot with Bob Saget. Was just here. I did it with Bob. I mean, I'll go. I'll. I'm happy to get on in in theaters and stuff because that's a better environment for for me than than like the you know the young Ed Hardy crowd in the comedy
0: clubs. Now, when you were doing your stand up, as you your TV show is done, and you're on the home show did people expect something from you because I think a lot of times people watch TV and if they haven't seen you do stand up but they know you're on this show as a correspondent and they like you they're probably thinking you're gonna be just like you are on that show if your act varies did you ever have people go wait a second this isn't the will we know
1: no no because I'm pretty much true to you know my 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 comedy and my voice is pretty much true to who I am I'm mean, it's not like you know, like, like Bob Saget had a, you know, challenge because, you know, he was that dad on Full House. And when you go see him, you know, Bob used to work pretty blue and, you know, it would shock people because like, whoa, that wasn't what we were expecting. I think, you know, most comics, you know, the persona, you know, I don't, there's a, you know, there's a most comics, are you know, now there's definitely guys that, you know, very different, very shy in person. You know, you take a guy like Steve Martin, he you know, he's pretty reserved and shy, but, you know, his act was way out there. You know, and his. You know, um, but I think when you go to see somebody, I think you're if you're going paying to see him, you're already sort of predisposed uh, that you like him. You know, if you're an opening act for you know, I open for you know, country acts. I Tom Jones. I open for you know, Crystal Gale, Loretta Lynn. You know, so you you know, you kind of had to be aware. And I think as a comic, your job is to kind of look at that audience and say, well, let me you know let me uh let me make them laugh let me find a common ground i mean you can't just go here's what i do and i'm doing it whether they like it or not i mean i think it's i think it costs you ultimately you know in the success of your show i mean um, if I, you know, if I have to work like down here, if I work for an older crowd, there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of condo circuit and theaters and, you know, the crowds could be up 50 and 60 and 70, you know, you got to work a little slower. You got to kind of explain the jokes a little bit, you know, you have to use, you know, references that they're going to get, you know, uh, I, I've never, I've always kind of prided myself and, you know, what, if it's a corporate crowd learning their, their corporate business and use words that, that, that are part of their lexicon. And, uh, you know, as a, as a comic, I can go into a club. I went in with Don Morera the other night, you know, and I can get as dirty as, as I want to get, but I, I don't, you know, I don't really feel like I need to do that, you know? And, uh, I'm, I'm down here on a radio show called the Paul and young Ron show every, every week. And, you know, I go on there and I'm just kind of a resident smart ass. So for me, that's fun. And it, you know, it helps keep my, uh, my name out there. And, you know, people, when I play a theater, I can, you know, sell seven, 800 seats in a the theater. So that, that, that's, you know, productive. And I, you know, I still love doing it. I'm going to, my son is coming down next week and we'll go out and do, I'll go with him and we'll do a, uh, a few shows together.
0: Now you're doing, you know, you still kept your stand up going and you're doing the, uh, the, the hosting the shows. When did you turn to TV directing? How did that happen? And you've directed some really good shows. And was it was it hard to get those jobs or was it easier? Because I would think they would look at you and they would say, you know, yeah, your films have been on, but then they also would know you, as you said, as a host. So now you're coming and directing like a Fraser and stuff like that. How did you decide to venture into that? Did someone ask you to get into directing TV or is it something that you finally said, this is what I want to do? No, you know, I was
1: playing poker with uh, Jay Sandrich, who directed, you know, a lot of Cheers and a lot of New Hearts and Mary Tyler Moores, and a director named John Boab, who did a lot of television as well, a lot of Broadway, and Bud Friedman. And we had this poker group, Rich Hall, Tom Dreesen, uh, Eugene Leibowitz was a writer. And there was a bunch of us, and, I, and, I, and, and those two directors would always say, don't tell anybody, but it's the best job in show business. You get these residuals for the rest of your life. And, I mean, I just got a residual today from Fraser for, you know, a couple grand. And it's just, you know, it's the gift that keeps on giving. And uh, so I had sort of, as I was getting older, and my manager one time said, hey, the breakdowns, they're looking for a Will Schreiner type. And I said, hey, you, you really, you should submit me. I think it'd be good for it. And they and they said, no, no, I'm looking for a younger, cheaper Will Schreiner. And that's when it kind of hit me, like, you know, I, I am aging up, you know, and, and uh, you know, television and, comedy you know it's so it's about youth and that's who they're after the younger crowd so i i went to see jay and jimmy Burrows, who's the other great t- tv director were being honored at a tv academy event and i bumped into kelsey Grammer, who i've known he grew up in florida i've known him mutual friends for years and he said what are you doing here and i said oh you know i just got can play with cards with jay and i you know i'm just thinking about tv directing and he goes well really you're serious call my office and come to fraser and watch so I started coming to Frazier and watching, and I go to the you know all the rehearsals and all the run-throughs and all the shows, tapings, and from there I you know became friends with some of the great directors that were coming through there, Pam Fryman, uh, Jeff Melman, uh, Andy Ackerman. You know, different directors would take me you know with them on other shows, and I kind of really put in a year, a hard year, going around and you're kind of like you're like stinky fish when you come to a show because everybody wants to know who's this guy what's he doing here oh he's another guy looking to get to a directing gig and the ad's don't like you and the uh you know dp doesn't like you and the editor doesn't like you because you're you're a threat to them because everybody wants to direct a show so you do you do your time you try to stay out of the way and i really learned a lot watching you know Burroughs and, and pam freiman was a great mentor and uh and then one year, it was like towards the end of the season, and Peter Casey, who ran the Fraser Show, said, "You know, um, you know, I assume you're hanging out here because you want to direct one of these." And I said, "No, oh, no, Peter, I just, I just come. I like to see what you're wearing every day." <laughs> and he laughed, and he says, "Well, we're going to put you up for one next next season." And uh, I got one in January 2000. and It was a good script. It was a good episode. It won a Writer's Guild Humanitas Award, and, uh, and I did a good job, and then and, and I got another one. You know, you get one Frasier, then you get two, then you get four, then you get six, and, you know, I just kept building my resume on shows, and I went to, with Ted Danson, had a show called Becker, and I went over on Encore with uh, Nathan Lane, had a show, and I went, and I observed, and I got opportunities, I got an opportunity to direct everybody else, Raymond, and then Norman Steinberg, who was a great writer and wrote a lot of great movies, was running Bob Saget's show, and Bob had a show on the WB called Raising Dad, so I went over there and directed uh, three, and then they offered me the whole rest of the season when they got picked up, and uh, of course I, I took as many as I could, but I was still doing Fraser and Becker, and I knew those shows would see, you know, a long shelf life. So I stayed with the good shows and did as many other shows as I can, I had Wife and Kids, I did a Gilmore Girls, I did oh, Two Guys, a Girl and a Pizza Place, and... Oh, there were a bunch of shows. You know, you just kind of picked them up as you could because, you know, you, it, at those days there were a lot of sitcoms and, and everybody couldn't work. There's, there's, Now there's even more sitcoms, but it's it's a different kind of style. They're not the multi-camera shows that were of, you know, the Friends and the Frasers and the, you know, the Raymonds were all shot four cameras in front of a live audience. And a lot of shows now are done single camera, you know, and usually one of the showrunner, writers, producers, you know, they do a lot of them themselves because it's, it's easier um, you know, I was talking to Steve Levitan once. I was trying to get a Modern family, and he says sometimes it's easier for us to just do them than to have some tell somebody else how you want to do it. You know, so um, uh, you know, you just kind of keep banging your head against you know these different shows and uh, and keep building your resume, building your resume. Then uh, I met uh, Jimmy Buffett and this opportunity to make this movie, this movie called Hoot, which was a a, a Carl Hyson book. Kids book and uh, so I read I read the book and I said you just make a great movie. So how do we do that? And so I said well you know you get a script if somebody wants to buy because nobody's bought the option the book. So I said I'll write the script if I can direct it. And so we shook on a on a fish sandwich in the Keys. And I went back and I wrote the script and I got notes from Jimmy and I got notes from Carl and then he gave it to Frank Marshall who's a big deal producer, Kennedy Marshall. And Frank had really good notes and I so I went back and I addressed those notes and then we we took it out, we took it to Walden and we sold it like in our first meeting.
0: Now you're coming from... And a, so
1: now we're off making this, now we get to make this movie so I start casting it and there was a little girl in, in Bob Saget's show, the daughter named Brie Larson and I just always loved her and I always saw her as so talented and vulnerable and uh, so I cast her as one of the leads in the movie, and she's, you know, to, 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 to my great pride, she just won an Oscar, a BAFTA, a SAG Award, and a, uh, and, uh, and a Golden Globe for her performance in Room. She's just a wonderful little actress, and now she's in Kong Island, and she's got Captain Marvel. I mean, she's got this great career, and I, you know, you, you go, oh, that feels good that you spotted, you know, spotted somebody that really, you know, that, that I, I think I, that was her first lead in the movie. And uh, we had a kid named Logan Lerman, Lerman. Logan Lerman that played the male lead. And He's gone on to do dozens of movies. And and Luke. So you were talking about roadies. Luke Wilson was our lead guy. And Luke's, I actually like roadies. I watched a couple of them. I haven't seen. I guess there's four or five. You were talking at the top of the show. I just. I'm just caught up on Night of. I think Night of is just so interesting. It's so dark. And it's you know it's it's it's, it's you know it's so well done. I mean I can't wait for the finale episode. It's an hour and forty five yeah, minutes.
0: Yeah. The finale.
1: That's coming up, I guess, next week. And and Ray Donovan is like a great show. I mean, we were just talking on the radio the other day about our favorite. I mean, there's so much great television. Bloodline's a show they shoot down here. Love that. Another great show. I mean, Homeland. I mean, uh, House of Cards. The great great stuff that we're watching on TV now is being done at, at places where the creative types are being left alone to do what they do you know and and you know they give you the money and then you go make the show i mean that, you know they there's not like at the net, when we were on frazier we didn't have network notes you know we, nobody came and gave, gave you know when you get on these young new shows with young executives they want, all want to you know come in and give you their opinion and you know and sometimes you have to trust the people you hire to do the show they want to do you know but well, you know that's the beauty of film is you're kind of the boss and in television you really work for the show runners And the writers you work for the producer you work for the network and you work for the studio so you have like four bosses that you you know because you want to come back and do shows for other networks and for other studios so you know tv is a different animal and uh i think i i enjoy film more because it's it's more of the directors and since i was also the writer you know i i kind of saw it a certain way so you know then you just it's the goal is to execute it you know in the time frame and with the budget that they give you
0: I was going to ask you about, you know, when you said your first TV directing gig was a Frasier gig with a great script. Now, what is, I mean, for you, you must love that because that's almost like, that's like an all-star baseball player joining an all-star team or a rookie joining it. I mean.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, in a show like Frasier, you just try to stay out of the way. You know, you point the cameras, you set your shots you know, I don't go in and give a lot of acting notes to, you know, to David I. Pierce and John Mahoney and Kelsey, you know. But you do, you can help with the funny. I mean, there's been many cases. There was a joke that was just dying on uh, Becker and Ted. Ted and I gave Ted I said, let's do one more pass. And I said, try this line. And it got a huge laugh. Uh, and sometimes it gets a huge laugh because it's different, but sometimes it gets a good laugh because it's better. So it got a big laugh and the showrunner came over to Ted and goes, hey, Ted, great ad lib. And Ted pointed at me. He goes, that was Will. And I, and I looked at the showrunner, well you know, I had a good relationship with Dave Hackle, and I said, hey, a little free funny, what do you, you know, no charge, <laughs> <laughs> on the house. But that, you know, that was a helpful thing for me as a TV director, was to bring, you know, I, I do think I know where the laugh is, you know, and I can mark a script when I hear it at the table read, uh, where, you know, where I think the laughs will be, and, you know, and and, and you're an asset if, you know, when, when <clears throat> I remember I was doing Norm McDonald's show, and Bruce Elford who's you know done a lot of shows and is a great showrunner you know they would just stop and you know rewrite if something died and uh, you know the audience would sit and the warm up guy would try to keep them busy and you know we we sometimes would lose the audience just cuz of the time and you know if i had a if i had a, a punchline or something i could throw in there you know i it was it saved everybody time it was a much more efficient way to work unfortunately you know they don't look at the directors to bring the funny um because the writers that's their job but you know if you do it's just i think it's an asset you know and i know i mean you know i know a lot of uh, uh actors that are you know and, and comedians bob Gold, bobcat goldsweights you know directing now and you know he's certainly a guy who knows where the, the funny is and uh you know i think it's an asset over an an ad or an editor who doesn't really you got to know how to talk to camera you talk to cameras you got to know how to talk to actors you got to know how to you got to know how to sh- cover you got to know how to vary your coverage i mean it's there's a lot more to it you know everybody just thinks they see the quad and they go oh well, yeah i got a master and a couple singles and you know it's it's a lot more to it and it's also pacing and and uh you know and 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 uh i when i talk about directing at film schools and stuff i mean i bring like a master of a scene and then i show how i used all the cameras to isolate those Reactions and those, um, you know, where the punchlines were, where the where there were extra laughs based on reaction. When I was doing Raymond, Phil Rosenthal was very um, concerned with how you switch the audience feed. So if you if if you're going to cut the mom Marie for a laugh for a reaction, the audience better see that cut. They want to see that because you know a lot of times we do it as a play, and there. But 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 Phil really and and rightly so you know you would go up and sit with the uh what was called the audience switcher the technical director and say yeah yeah make sure you get go for go go in on her for a shot and then come back out or whatever so that was you know that was that was another uh you know and you're like you know you've had a chug down a quick meal you're getting ready to do the show and now you're sitting with the you know the tv going make sure you do this this and this so it was you know it was it's a long it's a long day but at the end it was a great you know it was a great experience I mean I, I've i directed you know hundreds of hours of television stuff but I think the sitcom is, is like my favorite
0: do you think that you did the sitcom was easier for you to direct uh, because one you had the comedy background two you know as you said you were you were an actor I mean you know you were directed by Coppola and then you had your your talk show and your host's show and game shows and all that stuff. So you saw all kind of directors and you saw what worked and what didn't. Do you think that helped you transition into these games? Well, it helped
1: anybody transition. When I had my first job when I was 20 years old, I worked on a movie called Ode to Billy Joe. Uh, Max Baer, who was Jethro in the Beverly Hills, directed this movie with Robbie Benson. And I was a PA for 100 bucks a week delivering scripts and running around. And I said, can I come on location? I'll pay my own airfare. Just give me a hotel and a per diem and, you know, like a minimal salary. And I said, but here's the deal. I want to work in a different department each week. So I worked in transpo one week, camera one week, sound one week. You know, worked in 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 the office. Worked you know with the, you know schlepping the actors with the ads and being a PA. And I learned like everybody's job. And I, I think that's advice I would give to anybody. I mean, the more you know about what other people are supposed to do, the more the better you are all around. So you know, for for anybody, I went and did a a show for Long Island University. We did a presentation with a bunch of film students that had written this master's program, and it was kind of a dark uh it was uh cbs gave us 50 grand to make this pilot it's about a, a oxycontin addicted fireman and so we had all these kids and everybody wanted to be the director pointing the camera but nobody you know like hey can you set a c stand over there can we flag that light you know like what 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 so you know it was it was uh you know it was hard cuz there were like two of us that had ever been on a set before and uh you know but out of this i mean i i I try to teach all these kids. I said, you know, learn all this stuff because it's only going to make you better as a writer. It's going to make you better as a performer. You know, my son worked as a stand-in and still works sometimes as a stand-in and, and loves it because he's on a set. He sees, you know, how to behave. You know, he's he's learned, you know, you know, what it takes, you know, ne- you're never late, you know. You, there's a responsibility because we, as producers and directors, you know, we don't have the luxury of somebody screwing up. Uh, you know, it's so expensive, the process, that we need, you know, the, you need to be, we need to hire only pros that we know are going to hit their mark, know their lines, and move on. We don't have time to, you know, nurse anybody through. I mean, I've had to let actors go on, on shows that just didn't deliver what they did at the audition. And it's hard, you know. And you and you know, you try to bring them along, and the studio's like, oh, "Get rid of her! Get rid of her!" And you go, "No, no, let me give her another day. Let me let me work with her a little bit." And then you go, "No, nah, it ain't happening." Um, so you know, that's you know, for anybody who's young and aspiring to be an actor or or even a comic, you know, don't come out and phone it in, man. Know your know your stuff. Work at it. Come and do a sound check. You know, I I used to bitch about the sound, and and Gary Mule Deer, a good buddy of mine, he says, "You can't bitch about the sound if you don't come to the sound check." You know, you gotta come and make sure that the monitor volume is where you want it and what the house sounds like and what the light situation's like. I mean, you know, t- you have to take an active part in, in in the product.
0: Now when you trans as you said, you know, you directed sitcoms and other shows. What was it like directing a drama after directing a sitcom? Because as you said, you know, your background is stand up comedy. You know when the laugh laugh works, you know it's gonna hit. You know, if the laugh doesn't work, you gotta fine tune something. And it's also 22 minutes compared to 44 minutes. What's the difference when you start to direct a drama? Is there, Do you have to direct it a little bit differently? And, because you're not working with the live crowd. And what do you right. do then? And
1: you're doing it in a single camera, a two-camera setting. Like, when, Gilmore Girls was like a dramedy. You know, there was some lighter moments. There were some, you know, dramatic moments. Um, you know, a show like that, it's, it, it's you know... You, you know and, and for a lot of us that were you know freelance directors that weren't like the show's director every week you know you had to kind of come in and take the temperature of the actresses and, and the set and you know and who was in charge and when I went in to do Gilmore Girls I mean a couple times a l- the little young girl you know I'd say hey you know we're going to try and do this in a one you know and then you know she would walk out I said you, you seem mad when you came in can you, you know like maybe have a little more fun coming in the door and she said whatever you know and you're like okay um just, you know, if you can try it, you know, and if she didn't do it, I'm going to do 10 more takes till she does it. <laughs> um, but, you know, you, you don't have, I, I, the point of the question, the drama, they're not really different. I mean, you're still telling the story with a lens and, and, and actors. I mean, to me, it's important. Eyeline becomes important, you know, get, getting the best eye line on an actor. You know, a lot of people will upstage themselves. Um, you know, the camera, the fluidity. I mean, we live in a time now where where the camera is so fluid, you know. I'm, but, but you take a a couple of directors like Rob Reiner and Clint Eastwood. they're not big moving the camera around. they set up a master and they do their coverage and they go in. but then you got these these fluid shows where the camera I just saw a born identity. I don't think the camera ever stopped moving I mean so you know and and with the steady cam changed a lot, and you know the fluidity of the smaller four k cameras have given us a lot more mobility to do stuff, and you can sh- you can shoot a lot more coverage and 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 you know and and uh You know, but eventually it's all got to fit together, you know, and and knowing what editing is all about, I mean, for anybody, I mean, I I used to cut a lot of stuff on a movieola, so I kind of grew up editing, so when I would shoot something, I always know how it would cut, and uh, somebody gave me a film that they shot, uh, and and said, can you cut this, I'm like, well, the guy that shot it didn't really, um, you know, (laughs) give us a lot of choices here, nothing matches, so I don't know, I don't want to get too serious about it all, but I do love, I do love, I mean, your show, you know, your comic, you know, I mean, it's all about making people laugh going out. I mean, there's no better joy than, you know, having a, you know, a thousand people in a room and you're at the focus and there's no drink service and there's no thing and they're hanging on every word. I mean, that's what. That's why we all try to do theater, you know, all try to play in theaters. I mean, I think I'd love to do a one-man show on Broadway sometime. I mean, that that's my goal is, is I'm working towards something like that one day.
0: Now, with the movie you said about the movie Hoot, when you had to write that, had you written screenplays before? Had you, I mean, everyone always says, oh, yeah, I wrote a screenplay. And a lot of us wrote screenplays and we just put them in our drawer. And then you look at them like a year later, the first one you write and you go, oh, my God, what the hell was I thinking? What was?" Yeah, it-
1: no, I'd written a couple screenplays with some friends and I'd written a lot of other stuff. But, yeah, no, I, I was working off of a book. So it was, you know, it was easier than just an original screenplay because I had a framework and I knew, you know, what the story was. I had gone when I first moved to LA in the seventies. I'd gone to this place called uh, Sherwood Oaks Experimental College, and they—I took a writing course for like twelve weeks with Rod Serling. We had uh, Francois Truffaut came and would show movies. They had Hitchcock. I mean, they had everybody. They had acting panels with De Niro, Pacino, Jimmy Conn—all on the same panel. This guy got everybody, and it was a no credit, no. It was just a no-bullshit film school, and uh, it was just like you learn from the best. And, you know, like, guys, George Carlin taught a 10-week comedy class that I took. Jonathan Winters taught a six-week comedy class. And Jonathan, you know, (laughs) as a class, we had to keep Jonathan on track. But, I mean, I I wish that I would have recorded it or kept better notes because, I mean, they they had so much to share, and they were into it. And as I bump into a few people that were in that class with Carlin, and we all just go, man... You know uh, what? You know what? What you know? What a, a wonderful uh, experience! I, I was friends with Buddy Hackett, and Buddy used to invite a bunch of young up-and-coming comics over to his house, and he'd make a kosher lunch, and we'd all sit around, and he'd lecture us on comedy, and it'd be like ten young comics, and 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 then Louis Nye and Poston, Tom Poston, and Sandy Hackett. and we'd all sit in his living room, and it was like a it was going to college comedy class. One time Seinfeld and I were both working in Vegas, I think we were doing the Merv Griffin show at the Riviera, and Cosby was on, and Cosby invited us to come back to the Hilton and hang out before his show. And we went back in his dressing room, and this was you know, this a long, long time ago, and Bill and Jerry and I sat in his dressing room just discussing the art and you know, s- you know, skill of comedy for like an hour. And then David Copperfield was the opening act, and he says, you guys want to go up and see Copperfield? No, 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 we want to sit here as long as you'll sit with us. And, I mean, I mean Bill couldn't have been more supportive. I mean, Bill, you know, was a true scholar of comedy, and, and uh, you know, sadly, his career's taken such a horrible, you know, turn, you know, by his own device. But, uh, I mean, he was really a fan of comedy. He was a great, you know, great storyteller. It's funny, because he taught, I met him when I was a kid, and in, in, I lived in, in Beverly Hills and he lived up the street from a friend of mine and he invited the neighborhood kids. We were in like sixth grade up to his house on a Saturday, gave us popcorn and showed us Charlie Chaplin, Harold, uh, Harold Lloyd, Buster Keaton, you know, uh, some of the old Mac Sennett comedies and just like talked to us about comedy. And we were, you know, we all knew him from his albums. And it was like, you know, wow, you know, and you know, I don't know, the, all of those influences probably have affected me over the years in terms of why, why I do what I do.
0: Now, when you started directing the movie, who, you know, because you you have, it was, as you said, it's a different, not what you're used to, it's a movie. How do you attack that differently than you attack a TV show? Because now it's also, you've written a script. Yes, you've got notes, but you've written a script and it's more of a, you know, Will Will Schreiner project. I mean, now you're writing and directing. Did you find it easier to direct your own writing or did you find it harder because you wrote it And you weren't like with the Fraser and stuff like that in these TV shows, you worked on these great shows, which were, you know, the the scripts that are known characters. What was it like for you to just direct from I know it's from a book, but your own words translating it. What was that experience like?
1: Oh, you know, I found it easy because I'd I'd had a lot, you know, it wasn't like, I mean, a lot of people get their first time directing, you know, it's like, you know, okay, where do we put the camera? How do we block this? I mean, you know, you you, you attack it in little pieces. I remember we wanted to start off at a beautiful location, which is this old um, sort of plantation style house. So the footage that the studio looked at the first couple days, it it was good performances, and it was this beautiful Florida location. And it was funny, after a couple of days of looking at it, they were like, okay, we don't need to hang around. We don't need to, you know, these people know what they're doing. You know, you always have to convince people that you know what you're doing because, you know, everybody's afraid for their jobs. So for me, you know, I was pretty comfortable. And when I hired this DP who was um, a, a fellow named Michael Chapman who had, had, had been a lifetime uh, ASC cinematographer, he would won a lifetime award. He he directed movies. He directed All the Right Moves with Tom Cruise, and he directed Clan of the Cave Bear with... With uh, Daryl Hannah, and he had he had come up with that whole look, and he won an, o- an Oscar for *The Fugitive*. I mean, Michael was like seventy years old when I hired him, and the studio was like, "Why are you hiring this old guy?" And I'm like, "I'm hiring a guy that's got more experience than this whole building does," nice. you know. And he he had been an operator on *Jaws* and on *The Godfather*. and He'd worked with Gordon Willis for years. I mean, here was my collaborator, who you know who I trusted and respected. So you know, I've got a great guy on the camera. I had a great first AD named Bruce Moriarty who had done Forrest Gump and bad boys and big movies and small movies so that's your that's your that's your core your ad your first ad and your 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 dp so you know we kind of would map out our day every day and you know bite it off and we you know we always made our day we always came in you know on we got our you know got our work done for the day no matter what the weather was we shot through four hurricanes down here and just kept forging away we always had a you know backup plan we had you know cover when it rained and and you know it was a very efficient you know 30 i think we shot 32 or three days and uh you know we we shot on panavision 35 millimeter which is you know now nobody does that anymore unless you're scorsese you know everybody's shooting digital and shooting on but you know we we wanted to do a beautiful you know film so we all kind of came to it with the same vision and the same you know objectives and i think you know when you're hiring a crew or when you're shooting something whether it's a student film or whatever you know you want to get people of like minds and who, who have you know who have you know the work as the most important element
0: now you shot that in florida and you know you know, now when did you decide to move back to florida when did you decide to leave la or have you been most of your career living in both places no i lived
1: in la for 30 years you know i kind of went to high school and college down here and i went out to went out to go to ucla and uh and I was there for thirty years and I came when we shot this in oh five, uh I came back to LA to edit and it was taking me like thirty minutes to get to the galleria and I only lived in Woodland Hills. It was just kind of I was like fed up with the traffic and too many people and and you know the you know, and I I, I just kinda of was ready for uh, you know, a break and I mean Florida, you know, we it's a really pretty spot, you know, we got, I'm into boats, and sailing, and scuba diving, and flying, and you know, this is like the ideal place to do all that stuff, and I come back to LA and work, you know, I'll come back and, and do shows, when I, you know, I came back and did, uh, I think a Gilmore Girls after the movie, and I came back and did a couple other projects, and I went and shot a project in New York, but you know, I don't really, I don't really, uh, you know, really want to live back in LA anymore, My my daughter was working on Mike and Molly for three years at Warner Brothers, and you know, and uh my son is you know aspiring and and i go see them and hang out with them but you know i i I don't know as you get as you get you know as you've been doing a long time you go like what's what's the quality what 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 do i want to do you know i mean we we you know i'm never going to retire when i meet all these you know i meet these old comics there's a comic down here named woody woodbury he's 92 you know and he's always like i got a show tomorrow night you know he's like lives (laughs) for the shows you know and he's still out there working you know you know vfw things and you know he's a very funny and good good guy but, yeah, you know, we, you know, I don't think, it, once you're a comic, I don't think you'll ever quit being a comic. A lot of guys, you know, get seduced by other things. You know, Adam Sandler's had a, you know, brilliant career with other movies and success. But he still comes back to comedy, you know. I mean, I think the only guy that really hasn't come back to stand-up is Woody Allen, you know. And what has he done, 70 movies, you know. Um, you know, Steve Martin even came back a little bit, but, you know. Uh, you know, it's funny. I saw them, Martin Short and Steve Martin, together. I mean, and they were both, you know, that they, they still, you know, I mean, Marty, you know, I mean, he uh, feeds on an audience. You know, I mean, he, you know, he plays more to the audience than than anybody. But you know, I think that's the joy. I mean, here's a guy with a lot of theater background. You know,
0: I saw I saw Martin Short uh, at, at the Alex Theater in Glendale. I know the girl who ran it. She called said you you, you guys want to come? And I'm going to tell you something. That show, talking about just energy. I mean, he comes out and he changes the characters and he does sings and he dances and you're yeah, right. yeah. he's a Well, you look at a guy like that and you go this that guy's a triple threat,
1: you know? Yeah. I'm not, you know, I, I look at myself as I can do a bunch of different things, but there are guys who I'm in awe of. I mean, there are there are uh, I saw a, a, I didn't know Sebastian Maniscalco. Um we were on a radio show together that I do it and uh he didn't know me and I didn't know him and I went and see him at the at this big playhouse here. 1500 people and i mean he just killed me i mean he's so animated he's so alive and and I, i'm sure you've seen his act i mean the guy's great you know and you go where did he come from you know but that's the joy of comedy is when guys come out of nowhere when Stephen wright emerged on the front on the la comedy scene everybody's like whoa refreshing smart clever you know i mean there, there you know there's there's always room for people you know if you if you if you got a unique kind of approach
0: you know now, with your stand-up, how did you get involved in doing a lot of corporate gigs and stuff like that? And, you know, is it is it – does that excite you because you have to pretty much do somewhat of a different act?
1: Um, yeah, you know, I, I don't know. I, 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 all along, I mean, because if you're clean, if you're dirty, if you, corporate's not open to you, you know, because you, you know, you'll piss somebody off quickly. Um, you know, I started doing um, – corporate work early on, because I was kind of a geek in terms of electronics, and and I started going to Comdex and CES and all this stuff, and slowly, uh, you know, Canon and different people would hire me to do spokesman things for them, to put films together for them, to create stuff for them, and then I got uh, got asked to help with the launch of a Windows, uh, Microsoft's Windows 2000 event, which was a big, expensive event, and I wrote and produced that show, and that we had, you know, Patrick Stewart as our host and Bill Gates was the sort of the, you know, the, the, the you know, the MC and running it. And I just, you know, I, I, I just, uh, I, I was just real with Bill. I didn't really, you know, I, and everybody lived in fear of him. And I was just like, you know, I was giving him shit sometimes, which which was, you know, Hey, we were talking about, you know, a joke about, about putting stuff in the overhead bin on an airplane and he goes, he didn't get it. And I go, oh, Bill, well, you're losing touch, you know, this private jet thing, man. You're losing touch with the little people. And he laughed, chuckled, you know. And so then he hired me to write and direct his retirement video when he quit being a CEO of Microsoft. And you talk about, you know, what an odd, you know, what an odd project that is and we you know we had all these limitations on, you know can't talk about his money can't talk about his kids we can't talk about this can't talk about that and so you know we get we kept bouncing ideas around and we eventually came up with i got a couple of friends and we came up with this day in the life scenario for him and it turned out really funny and uh because it was like a pedestrian little day in his life and it was he was doing things that he didn't even understand why they were funny and I kept, you know, trying to explain them to him. And and uh, there's a scene in a coffee shop where he has to go over, and he's getting over as a cappuccino. And he goes over to the, you know, the discount bookshelf and buys, picks up DOS for Dummies for ten cents and buys it. And he's like, "Why is that funny? Why is that funny?" And and when I showed it at Comdex in front of twenty thousand people at the MGM Grand. The minute the camera landed on the book, they were laughing. They were ahead of us in the joke, and and it it just killed. And I went backstage afterwards. I go, "Well, Bill," because I told him if it didn't get a laugh, I would mow his yard. And he says, "Why are you going to mow my yard?" I go, "Because that's how confident I am that we'll get a laugh." So when I went backstage, I go, "I guess you have to mow my yard now." And you know, he kind of chuckled, and you know, you know, I I look back on that experience. It was a great, you know, it was it was a little five minute video, but it, it. it, it, he used it for years and years uh, as as he was you know in his speaking tour as he was going around. Um, um, so you know uh, technology and those kinds of jobs. I think your question was how do I get corporate work? So you know I go and I moderate. I do a thing for the ATM industry every year and I moderate their their I MC the show and you know if you just keep as a as a as a moderator as an MC you know you just want to keep it moving keep it light and be you know and and be good at your job. So I. I do those a lot only because they, you know, they pay the bills and you don't have to, you know, you don't have a lot of advance. or so You don't have to draw anybody. You just come in and uh, Kevin Nealon and I were doing a bunch of stuff in the industry, in the entertainment industry. He would do kind of a Saturday live thing and I would shoot the film pieces. And those, you know, those jobs, you know, were, were plentiful. So we, you know, we, we, we used to do a, do them a lot. I, I'm doing less of them now only because I don't really, you know, I don't really want to get on an airplane anymore.
0: Right, we got to wrap up soon. I got to ask you: When you do stand up now, have, has your writing style changed through the years? Do you find yourself, you know, a lot of people who've been doing it for a while start being more storytelling instead of telling jokes? Do you think you your writing styles changed?
1: I think when you watch other people work, like I watched Sebastian work, and I thought, God, those are such great stories, and he's so physical, and he's so, you know, animated. And, you know, I've always been kind of a line comic, you know, jokes and lines, and not so much, I don't tell jokes, but, you know, funny observations. Um, You know, know, I I think I've always uh, tried to write a joke a day, you know, and write it down, put it somewhere. I've always found that, you know, it's it's just a muscle that if you don't do it and you don't find some other, you know... And you know, I write about you know, I, I fight with my wife a lot, and I you know, I I, I have this joke that I love that I said we can, we fight about everything we can't even agree on a safe word, and you know it <laughs> dies with old audiences. <laughs> but but I always I still love it you know I think it's a smart joke, but you know you got to know what a safe word is, um, you know, and uh, I I you know I, I think yeah I think we do all you know we don't settle as as the longer we do it the you know we we don't settle for the easier stuff. You know, and and I think I have a lot of friends that wrote, you know, jokes for Letterman and Leno and those things. And I think it's always about, you know, like you come up with a a a setup and a punchline and then it's all about just taking that because it's it's comedy's surprise, you know. So it's just about taking that expectation a little far from where you think it's going to be. And that's what formulates a great joke. You know, you, you can't, you know, I mean, you know, I mean, if you take uh, whatever, you know, I mean, God, Trump's been, you know, the easiest thing in the world, you know, you know, the the topical stuff's great. The problem with topical stuff is it, it has a short shelf life. So for me, I go on this radio show every Wednesday. It's called the Paul and Ron, Young Ron Show down here in Miami. And I, on the way in, I listen to NPR. I don't even listen, you know, and I just see what's happening in the news and write five jokes about it and get in there and, you know, and just come up with something.
0: Great. Well, you know, I, I want to thank you for coming on. And this is great. You have such a great career. And uh, your website is uh, Shriner Media.
1: Right, Shriner Media. Go, yeah, that's it.
0: People check it out, it's a great website. So please go look up Will's work. It's Will with one L not two. And people Yeah, that's do, right. Do you tweet? The second one's
1: silent. But Steve it's a pleasure to talk to you. You know, you know, you're obviously a fan of the of the art form and uh, and you know, keep you know, I mean ideas, share what you'll know and and, uh, you know, make people laugh. That's, you know, at the end of the day, you know, I mean, you look at guys like Jerry and, you know, who've gotten Jay and these guys who, you know, they're pretty comfortable financially, but they still love it. You know, we get out and, you know, it's not nothing like it.
0: Well, I want to thank you for coming on. So it was great talking to you. And so people check out Will Schreiner. Also, follow me on Twitter at Cooper Talk. Go to my website, coopertalk.net. I have 545 episodes up there. You can wow. email me. Email me, cooper at coopertalk.net. Uh, I'll get back to you. And also Instagram and uh, where's the friends? It's Cooper Talk One. iTunes, Cooper Talk One Word. And don't forget my other website, stopthesalt.com. It's my low sodium uh, cookbook, 120 easy recipes. Go buy it there. I make more money than if you buy it at Amazon, and they're easy to make. So, anyway, people, follow Will, go to his website, follow Cooper Talk. I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guest. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I will talk to you guys next week.